Hey everyone, and welcome to a new episode of Vertical Playpen, the podcast all about adventure and experiential education. I'm your host, Phil, and in this episode, I'm very excited to be joined by Andrew Gillings. Andrew. We'll just go through some uh, some questions, and then yeah, we'll go from there. What I tend to do is we'll, right. we'll talk we'll talk for uh, as long as we feel comfortable to do so, um, and then I will cut that end up cutting that down at some point, probably. Well, we'll see. We'll see how good it is. I, I my expectation this could be a two hour marathon that everyone would enjoy. Well, my expectation is you might get a solid three minutes, and then uh, well, so and mix mix me in with some light light Christmas music in the background. That's weird. Uh, his accent suddenly disappeared, and he was an American. Was he interviewing two people and saying they were one? <laughs> and he's singing. What's going yeah, on? I don't know what happened. <laughs> awesome. So, I am very excited to have Andrew Gillings on. I am going to actually read uh, your bio slightly. Uh, just to make sure I get this hundred percent right. Your name is Andrew, right? <laughs> um, that's, that's correct. Yeah. And you're the director of outdoor leadership at Hamilton college based in Clinton, New York. Uh, it says here you've been in a, an outdoor educator for 25 years and you've worked at Hamilton as the director of adventure program since 1997. That is all factually correct. That is all exactly and, who uh, you are. Thank you, Google for all those oh. valuable points. There's yeah, People could have been deceived that I just knew that and I was just pulling it straight from the brain. But now you've given away that I just Googled Andrew Gillings Hamilton College and read the first (laughs) sentence. (laughs) There are two Andrew Gillingses on Google and we compete for the top spot. Mm. Um, He is a South African businessman who uh, uh, does very different things than I do. Yes. There are many Phil Browns. So if you did a Google search there, you'll never find me. I'm sure you're at the top, Phil. What are you saying? That's true. It's true. Let's please. You're the first Phil Brown. Yeah. As if. Uh, So I have to say, I'm going to tell a story, Andrew, because I feel like I've told this story. In fact, what I tend to do is most people I meet that have any connection to you, or if you're in 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 the region, I sort of yell this story at people because I... I I find it incredible. Maybe you also do, but I'm not sure other people's reactions say it's as incredible as I think it is. We met each other at an AE conference. I think it was the Northeast Regional Conference. And I happened to see that in a car was an Ipswich Town Football Club um, sticker, or I can't remember what exactly it was, but there was something in the, in the car that was like, what? This doesn't make any sense to me. Because I, myself... And from Ipswich, and I am, as far as I know, the only person from Ipswich in America. I think we were sitting next to each other randomly at a meal. I was just asking where you're from because you're because of the accent, and I was like, "Oh, there's probably a connection here." I realized that was your car, and that you are from the same town as myself. Well, for the listener out there, Ipswich is not a not a frequently visited. Uh, British icon. It doesn't have, it's, it's not on the tourist trail. And so to, to have anyone, whether they're local or not know about Ipswich is unheard of. Um, It is not the most metropolitan glamorous of, of towns. Uh, Once famous for a a great football team in the seventies and eighties, sadly no longer. Mm -hmm. So Phil and I, when we talk always begin uh, and end by lamenting the, uh, the fortunes of Ipswich Town Football Club. 
it's uh, it's just one of the things, one of the many things that we bond over. So I'm sure everyone who's listening is fascinated. We could talk more about Ipswich Town Football Club, <laughs> but I'm going to go back. I, I'm back onto that bio, and I'm intrigued by something else that I'm reading that says you you hold a master's degree in exercise science. Now the reason that's that to me is striking is that I have a degree in sports science. So <laughs> there's. The more I'm learning about Andrew is the more that I think that if only I was I was older than him, I could claim that he was copying me. But I feel like because because I'm younger, maybe it's I who am copying him uh, because we have very similar paths um, in terms of experiential ed also. But how did you how did you start in experiential education? What was your interaction to come into the States? What's your story that led you to end up being a director of outdoor ed at, at Hamilton? My start in experiential education in the formal sense, uh, began with a postage stamp. I was in my first year at university. Uh, my room was a mess, as, as is normal. And I was trying to work out what to do next summer, something to do in the summer. Uh, a friend down the hallway said, you should go and work at summer camp in America. It'll be fun. And I had no idea what that meant or really what summer camp was. I think back then, most Brits' idea of American summer camp was that Charlie Brown cartoon Mm -hmm. where he lies in the tent and it rains all the time. Um, So I thought I didn't have much else planned. So I I thought I fell out the application. And then if I have a stamp, I'll just stick it on and send this thing in. And so I was in my room casting around for a stamp. The laws, the the gods of of experiential education smiled down and there was the corner of a stamp sticking out from under a piece of paper. And I stuck it on the application and here I am 35 years later. Um, It was literally as random as that. The application went in. I got chosen to work at a summer camp in New Hampshire, flew into... uh, New York City, stayed in a hotel and ended up in New Hampshire and in the middle of nowhere in June in 1987. Was incredibly fortunate to end up at a summer camp that cared. Uh, A lot of my friends ended up at at various other camps and had a fine experience, but not one that was repeatable. Uh, I ended up to my everlasting fortune at a place that was then called Interlochen and is now called uh, Windsor Mountain International Camp. Um, it, it changed its name not so long ago. Uh, and it just turned out to be a great hippie summer camp in the woods in New Hampshire with a little bit of this and a little bit of that. Um, they hired me to do canoeing and sailing uh, on the waterfront because I had a history in sailing. And and I'd done canoeing um, when it was called kayaking, um, which is, is in Britain. Or rather in Britain, it's canoeing and kayaking are the same thing. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I got I got to the US and I'd never been in a, in a Canadian canoe, in an open canoe with a single bladed paddle. But that's what I was teaching. So I, away I went. I had such a good time at camp and I learned so much that uh, I asked to come back the following year. And they had this thing called a ropes course in the middle of camp. And I'd never seen one before. I'd done things like it. Honestly, when I saw that ropes course and I saw kids climbing up and down trees in in harnesses, it was like the clouds had opened and the angels started to sing. It was that thing. And I thought, that's what I want to do. And I found it at last. I asked to be the ropes course counselor the following year. And, and amazingly, they said yes, invited me back and sent me to a place called Project Adventure to do a five-day workshop with some guy called Carl then run the ropes course for them for the summer. And so off I went to Hamilton Wenham and to the Iron Rail and did a five-day workshop with Carl Ronke 
and Charlie Harrington, I think. And honestly, again, the, the clouds opened and I said, I want to be like this guy. This is how it's supposed to be done. This is how adulting should look. I really got my start in this country and, and in the broader adventure programming world at Interlock and Summer Camp. And as I said, I'll be forever grateful. That led to more years at camp. Um, that led to their travel trip program, which has trips that went all around the world, one month long kids in a van type trips. So I was able to graduate from there. And I think one of the things that really helped was I was able to go on and sort of spread my career, spread my knowledge base by doing the things that they offered. Um, that led to a job at Simon's Rock College, which is now Bard College at Simon's Rock. I worked there for a few years and then um, randomly applied to the position at Hamilton for fun and sent off my application. And here I am 23 years later. You, you know, you touched on uh, the training that you did at Project Adventure with Carl and Charlie. What specifically about it do you think was that clouds opening moment? It, it is difficult, especially in the 21st century, to describe the value of fun for fun's sake. Carl summed it up with the acronym FUN, F-U-N-N, functional understanding is not necessary. And I think that's what was personified then there at that time was playing for playing sake, finding meaning later, but really focusing on open-ended, creative, fun having. And so especially the workshops back then had a very thin curriculum. Uh, there is really no curriculum, to be mm -hmm. honest. Um, it, the curriculum was, oh, let, you know, give Carl a field and some toys and some people, and he'll take care of the rest. And so on the first day, we, we spent half the day just falling over because Carl wanted us to know how to fall over. And I'm sure that wasn't on the curriculum, but it, was, it seemed important at the time. And, and with, with the persona that the man had, you just wanted to do what Carl did. Uh, and, and he was able to take 20 people who didn't know each other and, and just say, follow me because it'll be fun. And after an hour, you know, I'm just going to do what Carl says because it's going to be a great time and I'll probably learn something, but let's just give it a go. And I remember we ended up, I stayed a little late for some reason, but we ended up on the swinging log low element that had a, a rope swing next to it and a cowboy hat and standing on a post swinging doing as many spins holding onto the rope and then landing on the log, mm -hmm. taking the hat off and yelling yeehaw. Um, and that was the game. And we all took turns and we all spotted and people fell off, but it was just ridiculous. How can a 23 year old properly behaved, strict upbringing boy suddenly be released onto that. And, and that's, that's how it felt was a, a release of this is what, this is what I was supposed to do. I've got the fun. I can see the, the outlet. Let's see if I can be half as good as Carl. I feel like you've got like a different balance because you're working at a college. Are you able to still integrate as much fun as you would like into the strictness, maybe the boundaries of a college or how mm. does that play out for you now? I, I'm probably wrapping as much fun as I should be allowed to into my job. It might be best that I'm not allowed to have free mm. reign, mm -hmm. but I do have bosses and that other people get involved and sometimes say no. Um, I'm often quite proud when they say no. I feel like if, if people aren't saying no to my crazy ideas, then I'm probably not trying hard enough. 
mm-hmm. and it's one of the privileges that I have of working at a place like Hamilton that I'm allowed to ask the question in the first place and that occasionally if I get a no, then I'll just move on to the next thing and, and keep trying. So I do, I do try and instill in the students that I work with and in the program that we run here, that fun and spontaneity are important. And I feel if we, if we don't model that as adults, uh, as so-called as sensible adults, mm-hmm. give or take, you know, yeah. um, but if we don't model that, then there's no way for them to tell the good spontaneity from the air quotes, bad spontaneity. Um, and if we, all we do is look sensible and, and intellectual, then they've got no models on how to muck around well. So if I can get a bike and go ride with some kids and just, and we say kids, it's, it's pejorative with their mm-hmm. young adults. Um, but if we can go ride around with some kids and have fun um, and, you know, build, build the odd thing to fall off, then that's great. Let's do that. There's places, and I think the other thing we teach is that, or we try and model, is that there are places to do that, um, and there are places where you don't do that. And we don't, you know, teaching ice climbing is not a place to say, oh, just give it a go, have a swing. What could possibly go wrong? Well, actually, quite a lot could go wrong. So mm-hmm. maybe putting some bounds on that enthusiasm um, isn't such a bad idea. Yeah, we'll, we'll put you on top rope. How's that? Especially for the uninitiated, there's a. Uh perception of risk that's involved in some of the stuff I, you know i've got my daughter's turning five and um i've got a toddler harness for her and i've put her up in the ropes and i made an improvised rope swing near our house and people who don't know what that is can will look at that and say what on earth are you doing You're like strapping your kid to a yes. rope and pushing them over a cliff but i think that i've made enough assessment of it that i know eh, I, I, that's perfectly fine and it's allowing her to grow into this behavior that now i see her climbing on stuff and i just have to say like i want you to think about what you're doing is that the best choice to make right now and let her make that because i i don't want her to break a bone but at the same time i want her to be able to make those choices and you have that i you've got that with your daughter but also you've got that with your students that you're teaching i'm tying this to risk Tell us, like, what, what's your points on, like, what's your thoughts on managing risk and teaching risk? Going back to to putting your daughter on a, yeah. on a swing, it's it's very easy for people to see the negatives in that mm. and to measure the negatives in that, both objectively and subjectively. We look at it. We look at a rope swing and we think of all the ways that you could get hurt. And we can probably go onto some database and look at all the accidents that have happened on a rope swing. And we can quantify that in accident rate. And we can quantify that in our imagination of all the bad things that can happen. One of the hard things is to quantify the positives out of the rope swing because great things happen on a rope swing. Rope swings are really, really fun. Uh, the, the water that you land on, if it's a, if it's a let go mm-hmm. summer rope, it is relatively forgiving. And so there, there are great things that can happen with relatively low consequences. And so our job in, in, in risk management is to, is to minimize the negatives and to maximize the positives and to communicate that to to other people, um, partly to the participants by saying, guys, come and try this. It's going to be awesome. 
when I was young, it used to be, come and try to follow me and do what I do. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm not so young anymore. And sometimes I have to say, oh, give that a go. It'll be fun. <laughs> uh, and then stand back because I can't do that. My shoulders won't let me swing anymore. Mm. But in general, we sort of shove people out a little bit and say, it's going to be okay. Uh, it's, but it's very hard to quantify that. And, and part of our job, I think, in risk management is measuring how, how bad these things can be and how likely that is, but also convincing other people that it's a great thing to do and that there are bonuses and there are positives from doing these things. Because if we just take things away, if, if risk is always minus, then we'll, be end, we'll end up in nothing. There's a very famous quote by Willie Unsold, who is uh, one of the founders of experiential education in some ways, also a great American mountaineer, went, went up Everest was the fourth American to go up Everest and went up a new route up the wrong side, if you like, that is still very rarely repeated. But Willie Unsold uh, was working in Outward Bound and, and was fielding phone calls from parents who were talking about how dangerous the programs were going to be. And, and famously, he had this call from a mother uh, who's, who who wanted to know how risky it was going to be and how safe the, the program was and how he could guarantee the safety of her child. And legend has it that he snapped or, or, or sort of lost patience and said, Madam, if you continue to protect your child in this way, I can. the only thing I can guarantee is the death of his soul. And if you don't let him do anything um, at all, he's just not going to grow. Um, is another way to put it. And I think I've tried to remember that uh, because the difficulty is communicating what great things we do uh, and trying to quantify what can be gained from this. Uh, and I think that's part of how, of my philosophy of, of why I can justify doing my job. So even though we have the occasional accident and someone does get hurt very rarely, we can turn around and say, but look, uh, what also came out of it have you seen in you know, you've been at hamilton i think you said 23 years have have you seen a a change in the perception of risk and how you have to teach and what you have to analyze now how would you describe the change in in that in that 20 years i think so yes i mean i think within society it's followed along that many aspects of our society have got safer but just as you talked on your podcast last time with risk homeostasis, uh, and you did a great job with Lisa, I, I really enjoyed that podcast. People have a set point for risk. And if we reduce it in one area, it's just going to boil over in another area. So um, if we're not in control of their thermostat, oh, risk, mm-hmm. oh, meter, oh, goodness, then um, then if we're not if we're not providing something, then they're going to provide it themselves. Um, so I think as much as the institution wants to reduce the risk of things going wrong, we're still dealing with 18 to 22 year olds and it's, it's something's going to come out somewhere. Mm-hmm. And, and I sometimes, I, I often feel that it's my job to have some outlets for that, mm-hmm. that we can provide stuff that's, that's going to keep that risk output somewhere in the positive side. So it's not coming out in, in negative behaviors. Um, so I think it has changed a little bit. Certainly when I started here, I was doing more reining in of students' plans and programs and and wants. Uh, my first years, uh, the student-run outing club used to run trips that were just beyond my risk tolerance. 
shall we say. They would put three canoes on top of a 15-passenger van, put some number of people, un- unknown number of people inside, and then drive to the lake for a, in the dark and then go camping. Hmm. And so I had to somehow wrestle that back to um, something more reasonable. Uh, and I feel like over, over my time here, that, that equation has turned around where I'm now more in the business of pushing out and saying, hey, you've got all this training. You're ready to go. You can do this. Go get them. Mm-hmm. Go do this trip. Go find this, go find this campsite. Uh, you don't have everything planned. But you know what? That's okay. Just go and find out uh, what, what could possibly go wrong. And then they tend to go out and do the same sort of the same positive activities. What's your recommendation to emerging professionals coming about to step into the field? Like, how do you take your students and get them into the world? I, I do answer this question three or four times a year as students yeah. often quite late in the, in their academic time sort of wander in, literally wander in and sit down and say, what is this? What is this experiential thing? Yeah. Um, or, or how do I, or they, or they'll bounce in like puppies. Like, how do I do your job? I want your job. People have threatened me with like, oh, I want your job yeah. I'm coming after you. Mm-hmm. Uh, to which I say, great. I hope you get my job. And so there's a lot of unknown. I think that's the first thing we, we don't advertise very well. Mm-hmm. It's not, there's no central clearinghouse for, we don't, we don't have Google ads uh, for the experiential learning field. Um, and so it's quite hard for the neophyte to come in and find out what the different options are. So the best thing I can do for them. Um, and I do it as often as I can is to bring them to the AE conference mm-hmm. and bring them to the, to the Northeast regional, because that's where I live and bring them in there and say, just come and look, just come and have a look around, see what these people do. Go and sit with strangers. You're allowed to do that here. Talk, go and ask people what their job is and then just look around you. That it's one of those true mind blown moments when you see 20, 21 year olds going into an AE conference and seeing all the different things that they could do. And the fact that it becomes doable, that there are real people here like yourself uh, like Lisa and 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 others who do these things, uh, wilderness therapy is a is a great example. Uh, it takes a while to really work out that those two things can go together. They've gone together for a long time, and they could go together for you. And here are the routes that you could take to get to to be a wilderness counselor, mm-hmm. if you like. You know, my my advice has has changed a little over the years. Um, it, it's always been to just go and do it. Just go out and do as many different things as you can, because you might be sure right now of what your future is, but until you've tried all these other different things, you're not going to know exactly what the right thing was. And so to really, to really play the field and to get as many different jobs and as many different experiences as you can has always been important. And I think the thing that we have to layer on uh, now is to have some certification behind it, or at least begin to start to get a badge or two or three. One of the things that used to happen regularly at AE conferences was that somebody would um, present on staff selection and there'd be some presentation, some workshop on, on how to pick and train your staff. And there used to be a standard sort of a, a little, a little exercise at the beginning. And 
the presenter would hand out two resumes and, and the, res- the presenter would say, you're the director of a program, you're hiring one position and it's down to these two people. All you've got is to choose between this person or this person. Person A has a resume that has lots of field experience. This person's hiked the AT, they've run around the continent, they've done this and that, they've got a lot of personal adventure experience. And person B has a lot of badges. They've got all the certifications. They've got their woofer. They've got their level two from high five. But when you look at what else they do in their lives, they don't actually have, haven't actually done anything. They don't have any personal field experience. They don't do this for fun. So person A and person B are presented to the, to the group and the presenter says, you've got to pick one. That's all you've got to go on. Which one are you going to choose? Phil, which one are you going to choose? I'm going to choose the one with the experience, less less than the one with the certs. Why are you going to choose that person, Phil? Because I think that they have experience, and 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 uh, I think the certifications can be achieved by someone who has the experience, but the experience cannot be achieved by the person with the certs. I'm pleased to hear that. I'm mm-hmm. glad that I'm because uh, uh, that's how I feel about it. Yeah. Um, however, in the workshops where I saw it presented, almost everybody chose person B the person with the certificates. Mostly there was angst and gnashing of teeth about why don't we know more about these people? That wasn't the scenario presented. Mm-hmm. Um, and and the, the discussion that followed was very interesting. Um, m- most people said something along the lines of, I really wanted to choose person A, the person with the field experience. But in the end, I had to go with the certificates mm-hmm. just to be on the safe side. And there was that fallback to just being on the safe side that, was the manager who sort of uh, just needed to go in that direction. I thought that was really interesting because it does play to what a candidate needs. Um, and I think the true answer is, as I'm sure everyone would agree, is we need a bit of both. A badge yeah. is good. A badge is, a, is, is, a, is an upright statement of competence, if you like. But also having your own, showing that you're doing this for the right reasons, that you're doing this for fun, that you love it and you do it in your own time is really important because you have to love this stuff. It's not going to give you very much money. It's not going to give you very much time back, but it's going to give you so much more. It's going to give you the sort of job satisfaction that really only comes from a letter received five years after the students graduated that said, hey, thanks. You said this thing and it mattered here and now I'm doing that. You know, that's worth all the effort that we put into. Uh, that's why I do this gig is very occasionally you get those letters and they're wonderful or you get to see a student do a thing and you feel like you might've had something to do with it. So I think I, so my, my advice to anyone looking to get into this field is show you have both of those categories, those columns, column A and column B. You need to you need to do this thing because you love it. You need to demonstrate that you're committed, and and that it's it's in your soul. And you need to have some qualifications to show that you're a, a thoughtful practitioner, yeah. a respectable practitioner. It's the balance. Even as you were asking that question, my I'm drawn to one person more than the other, but I see the value of the other. So I think that you're you're saying of the the mix of the two because there is there is a reality to creating legitimacy more in this industry 
And the legitimacy is going to come from some things like journal articles. It's going to come from certifications that are offered on an international and national level. And yet we're also experiential education. So if you don't have experience Mm -hmm. and we call ourselves experiential education, there's a problem there. So there's that balance. I I realized myself, if it wasn't for the fact that I had experience, I wouldn't be in the role that I am today. I do not have a degree in this field. Mm -hmm. I do not have formal education in it. I had a passion and a love and a drive, and then I wanted to keep working at it. And then, sure, I got, I threw on, I got, I did get my woofer, I did get my level twos, I did follow those routes. But it was exactly what you were suggesting. I needed those things because I wanted to stay in this field. So there was a, that blend. We don't all get to work at such wonderful places as High Five, who are adept at seeing seeing the potential in people and, and saying, "You don't have any badges, but we don't care." Yeah. Um, we, we care more about your, about your soul and we can sort the badges out. Yeah. Um, so I, I we're not always that lucky. And, and mm. so we do need to be able to show people that we're legit because the experiential educator sort of works against us in the bigger field. It mm. looks like we're just playing. Yes. And I think as much as I lauded how much, how great it is to play, when people just look in from the side of the field, it, that's all it appears to be. And so we are, we're obliged to demonstrate that what we do is more than just playing that that's just the what now we need to move to the so what and the now what and yeah. that's that's just also where we earn our money mm-hmm. is being able to turn the play into something valuable and that's something i i learned early on i think i was again lucky um after grad school i got an internship at project adventure um, I got to be mentored by all sorts of great people there and uh, Bob Bryan being first and foremost um, a, a, a great mentor and and just being around Jim Scholl and some of those other folks and, and seeing that there was a what and a now what helped to sort of take it into legitimacy. Mm-hmm. Any, anyone who, who thinks that we're lightweights should go um, to a workshop presentation by Jason Seaman, who's a <laughs> professor at the University of New Hampshire in, in education, and just try keep up. If you can do 10 minutes with Jason Seaman, then A, you're very clever, and B, you're going to see that what we do has a lot of thought behind it and a lot of theory behind it and a lot of, lot of dry theory put into practice. It's good for my soul to go and try and keep up with Jason um, because it makes me realize that what I do has many levels of complexity. Uh, anything else you'd like to like talk about, Andrew, whilst, you, whilst I've got you here? Is there anything on the list that you would feel like, oh, I wish we'd talked about this? Well, it certainly isn't the fortunes of Ipswich Town Football Club. No. Um, you don't need to <laughs> dwell upon that. Well, once again, you got me crying and, you know, it's like, it's the, always <laughs> the aim. Bring the, bring the atmosphere down a yeah, bit. Always the aim. Um, I got some Christmas reading uh, that yeah, I've lined up. Sure. Um, one of the books that I've refer to but have never actually read full disclosure um <laughs> those so are the best I, book recommendations yeah i got this book for you is it good i don't know the first couple uh, of pages are pretty intriguing i got all these books on the shelf behind me i've read some of them yeah. definitely anyway you, so my, yeah. my summer my, my christmas reading is a re- reflection on the way i like to think or i try and think about risk management and 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 the training that goes with it and so the book 
listener is called Safety One and Safety Two, The Past and Future of Safety Management by Eric Holnagel, H-O-L-L-N-A-G-E-L, published 2014. Safety One and Safety Two. It's really a new way of thinking about risk management and about how we make our workplace safer. Uh, His point is that the old way of doing things was which he calls safety one is whether there are no accidents there are no accidents it's just the humans make mistakes and we need to be trained not to make any errors and that humans are the weakest link and if you focus on the negative and train the negative out of the system then we'll all be better off and then he goes on to describe safety two which is that humans are actually mostly doing things right and that we should look at the understanding of why why things do go right and focus on how we can make things go right more of the time. So it's a very much more positive. Instead of looking at the, the very few number of errors that are in most systems, mm-hmm. the very few number of accidents per million hours of use, which is a very small data set and therefore probably not very strong of an indicator of how to avoid it in the future. Mm -hmm. If we instead look at the very large data set of when things go right and try and train up to those higher standards, then the theory is that we'll do better, that we will get happier people, smarter people who are able to think about their work more broadly um, and who are considered to be the asset in the system rather than the liability in the system. Mm. So safety one, the old way of doing things, safety two, the new way of doing things. I find that fascinating. I've, I I found that it fits in with how I like to do things. And so I'm going to go uh, for my, my Christmas sojourn mm. and uh, try and read the book. See if, see if that is going to help me with my thinking on, on how I select and train my student leaders, because that's the, best part of my job. Uh, It's the bit I like the most is selecting trip leaders and then training them to do this job. Mm -hmm. Uh, Hamilton College has a orientation, as all colleges do, and our orientation for incoming students is built around a trip, um, an orientation trip. So for the last five years, every student who comes to Hamilton College goes on an orientation trip. They sign up over the summer. They put down their top five choices. We have a very fancy algorithm that picks them and gets them there closest to their top choice. And then we send them off on a trip. Most of the trips are um, wilderness-based. Um, we have the program that I have the honor to direct is called Adirondack Adventure, which is abbreviated to AA, which is vastly the, the source of no end of jokes in the college setting because mm-hmm. every student that arrives does AA. Mm-hmm. Hardy, ha, ha. <laughs> and so we do Adirondack Adventure. Um, about just over half the student body has done that. They come in, they do a trip. They do four days in the Adirondacks with two leaders, uh, two student leaders, and they go canoeing, they go hiking, rock climbing, all sorts of different trips, easy ones, hard ones, wet ones, dry ones. I get to hire the student leaders. I get to train them. I get to do the logistics and send them out on their trips. Mm-hmm. And I love it. I, that's that's one of the bits of the job that I really like. It's mm-hmm. very personal with students. It's very intense because we don't get a lot of time to do the training. And we've made a, a big effort to select students who are 
have the highest potential rather than the most experience um, and who students that we really want to put in front of these incoming first years to say, this is the kind of student you want to be. This is the kind of way we ask and answer questions. These are the ones that you want to have as mentors. Mm-hmm. And I get the privilege and really I, I'm not worthy of it because it's a huge privilege to pick the first students that incoming students get to be with and then train them up. We have to train them to lead trips. We have to teach them how to put up a tent. Um, we have to teach them how to have their own camping system and, and manage themselves as well as others in, in the woods. But then we also have to teach them how to represent college life and how to answer those questions, how to talk about sex and drugs and rock and roll um, without taking the, the party line, without being a, a mouthpiece of the college, but to give a realistic answer that is inclusive and that is a realistic representation of what the next four years is going to be like. The selection process I, I find is absolutely fascinating and the ability to take these kids and, and to train them to be risk managers in the field, to have, to give them aids and systems that will help them make good decisions in the spur of the moment on their own. I, you know, it's one of those things, the more I think about it, the less I think I should do it because it's terrifying. <laughs> you start to explain it in those many words yeah. and I just lock up with fear, but it's, it's a fabulous time. Everyone mm-hmm. has a lot of fun. Kids come back, student leaders come back and do it over and over again. Uh, they get better and better. And um, we, we use them as, as mentors to, to go on and teach. Looking at risk management from that perspective of how can I help this 19-year-old sophomore, rising sophomore, who is standing in the front of a group at the edge of a stream, and all the kids are looking at them saying, are we going to cross this or are we going to go three miles all the way around? In that moment, I need to give them tools to make the best decision. And I think the, the tools are not a thorough review of all the policy and procedures and a knowledge of the statistics. It's deeper than that. That helps, but fundamentally we need to help. I need to help them make good decisions in the spur of the moment. One of my first aha moments um, in this field was a book called sources of power by Gary Klein. Gary Klein looked at how people make decisions and the pathways that they use to make decisions, to make quick, critical decisions mm. in the settings that we sort of work in. He, he did a lot of um, quantitative research and interviewing with people that make a lot of fast decisions. Uh, you know, Classically, he would sit down with firefighters after they came back from fighting a fire. He'd sit them down in the, in the lounge upstairs and say, so you decided to send those firefighters on the roof over there even though it was smoky and there was flames looking out. Why did you send them on that roof? And so why did you talk to intensive care nurses? And he said, well, that, that infant looked a certain way and you decided that the, that infant needed this drug or this oxygen. Why did you decide that? And for a long time, he couldn't, people couldn't give him an answer. They were unable to say why it was that they made the decisions that they made. And a lot of it was, came back to, well, I just knew or I just thought that. And so the story goes, they were sitting with the firefighting chief in, a, in, in the, the dining room of this firehouse uh, asking these questions. And, and the, the guy wasn't saying anything. And eventually he looked more and more flustered. And eventually he got up and he closed the door. And he said, you can't tell anyone that I said this. But what I do is I use my imagination. 
what I do is I, I think creatively and I make up stories about what happens if I do this or what happens if I do that. And he didn't want to be labeled as in that environment. And perhaps this was some time ago as well. But in that, in that culture, creativity is not rewarded. It's not a valued asset. Uh, and yet it's what all of them were doing. And so Klein came up with this term of recognition-primed decision-making. People recognize the situation as being primed by something that they saw earlier. So they see the, they see the smoke coming out from under the roof of this house, and they're like, ah, I remember seeing that before. I remember being in this other situation where that happened, and it was okay, or it was not okay. So I'm going to make my decision based on my pulling from my memory and recreating that situation now and making my decision based on not just my knowledge, my history, but also how that I apply it to this mm-hmm. situation here. And so they, he came up with two theories of, of making good decisions in the field. The one is if you, if you have knowledge in the field and if you have it and you recognize, ah, oh, this was like that other thing, I'm going to make this decision because it's, I can pull a bit from here and a bit from there and I recognize it. And that's if you have knowledge in the field. And the second one is mental simulation. If you don't have anything to go on, you're going to make up stories and see how the outcome comes. And you're going to imagine if it goes like this, then I'm going to end up over here or I'll change a a variable and the decision will go over there. So that's a good idea. That's not a good idea. Here's my mental model. Here's my video in my head of how it plays out. I, I think that this goes back to our choice between applicant A and applicant B in choosing for the job. I feel like this stuff uh, makes me more inclined to choose applicant A, the person that had all the different experiences and had done all mm-hmm. this stuff, rather than applicant B, who had a lot of training and a lot of badges, but only in very narrow, tight, siloed experiences. I'm really going to go for applicant A, because that person's probably going to have more different buckets to pull from, more different Mm -hmm. experiences from which to draw to get to a better answer in a novel situation. We're training for novel situations and there's no pat answer. So get people that have this really wide variety of experiences and they're the ones who are quite likely going to have the creativity or at least the the recognition of different things that might apply. Stay broad and get mm-hmm. as a lot as many different experiences as you can. If you want to be a great kayak instructor, go winter camping because one day you'll be kayaking and your knowledge of how your fingers work when they're freezing cold in the winter is going to become really important when you're trying to tie that knot on the side of the river to do a kayak rescue. And all these varied all these varied experiences are going to produce a more well-rounded liberal arts educated kind of student. And to find one uh job that you could find very quickly straight out of college that would give you some semblance of experience in a varied range as a summer camp experience i i tell all students i know it feels like sometimes a step down you've just got a degree and you want to take a summer camp job Mm -hmm. and that can be resisted but do it because you'll be a jack of all trades i learn how to use a chainsaw i learn like many different things that i learn 
through the experience yes. of that that have guided me in lots of different ways when I look back and think, you know what? Yeah, I remember when I taught fishing and I had no idea how to fish and yet I was put in, in charge of fishing instruction, how much yeah. that taught me. <laughs> you know? uh, that was me in canoeing. I had to teach canoeing having never done it before. I went with what I did know and we did uh, lots of falling out and played canoe wars. Mm-hmm. Um, so rather than paddling forward, we just fell out. Uh, yeah. That was, that was my, more my speciality. I just found I, just found I untangled a, a line very often and I and now I think that's why I get so annoyed about P-chord management uh, because <laughs> it draws me back to that moment on a boat trying yes. with screaming yeah. kids trying to untangle their fishing lines. The other thing about summer camp, uh, which I think is valuable in the long run, is, is the opportunity to do the same thing over and over again. The number of times you have to teach low ropes for an hour and mm-hmm. a half with the same five elements and you have to repeat the words to set it up. But then add a little twist here or a little twist there, the ability to have that a chance to build up a big block and then play with, you know, mangle it a bit to see what results. When you get one word wrong, sometimes you're presenting an element, you get one word wrong and you get a completely different result because you forgot to say that, you know, you're not allowed to, when you catch the ball, you're not allowed to run. And I just forgot to say it. And so suddenly we've got a new game. Mm-hmm. Suddenly they're catching the ball and then running with it. And all of a sudden we've created rugby or something like yeah. that. It's little errors like that. And the ability to repeat the routine with variation mm-hmm. allows to build up this big picture of what it is. If you look at my challenge course portfolio, I've got more hours of facilitation in the years that I did summer camp than I have in the last 10 years as a trainer. Absolutely. And it's yeah. because I would do exactly that. I was only in charge of the challenge course. I would do team building lows, highs, zip, hours, six hours on a zip platform, back to back hours, you mm-hmm. know, re- constant repetition, six days a right. week, eight in the morning, six in the evening. You're logging in 500 hours average a, year, a summer. And that's, yeah. you're not going to get that other places. So uh, I honestly don't know if I could do that anymore, Phil. As much as I would like to go back to my youth, I couldn't stand at the top of a zip line platform for four hours. You've got this incredibly responsible challenge of selecting the leaders for the orientation program. And you said that you're not picking people based on skill. So what what some what are some of the parameters by which you are? Um that that's a really good question and it never ends. You know, we never we never quite we never quite get the answer to exactly what is, um, and we refer to it as the right stuff mm. from the book of the development of the astronauts. Uh, sadly, um, Chuck Yeager, the first of the test pilots, the first of the pilots died. So we're looking for the right stuff. We don't really know what it is. Now, there's never been anything like it before, so we can't really say exactly, but you'll know it when you see it. And I think if you asked a lot of, I, th- I think that the most important aspect of this for me is to stay the hell out of the way and rely on my returning leaders to do the picking because they are much better at it than I am. Mm-hmm. By the time that they've done this trip, by they've done the training, they've done a trip, maybe they've done two or three in their seniors now, they come back one, they're invested in making this program, keeping this program good because mm-hmm. it's going to reflect on them. And if the program goes downhill, then their efforts are for naught. And so they're inv- they're invested in getting it right. They also are picking their co- possibly picking their co-leader. So they don't want to pick someone who's going to 
screwed up. Mm-hmm. So they're really, they're really trying to pick the best people for the job. And so they, they have a good, better sense of what to look for. One of the things I've striven to do is to collect as much information and then be very careful how you quantify it. Handing out A's, B's, and C's to candidates really has pre-existing notions in people's heads of what an A and a B and a C means, and especially amongst uh, academically pretty gifted students who are used to getting all A's, it's very hard for them to mark anybody down. So then everybody gets an A and we've, we've got nowhere. Um, so any any of my leaders will tell you that I create these crazy ranking systems that have not much sense in the real world in order to sort of break that pre-existing notion. My good friend, Meg Bolger, told me recently that some grading system in the corporate world doesn't use the number seven. So no one gets a seven out of 10 when they're being graded either as an applicant or on their work because seven's the cop-out number. Everybody gets, a, you know, give someone a seven and it's like it's six is too low, eight is kind of too high. So seven is sort of the number that is just meh. So if you just skip seven and you can give people a six or an eight, it helps to spread the field. And that's really what we're looking to do is to spread the field mm. out. So we we do an interview process. There's a paper application. They get to do uh, different rounds of interviews. They get to do a round one, which is plays well with others, which you would recognize all the activities fill with a lot of the initiatives that the adventure field uses, the maze and marshmallows and uh, toothpicks towers and stuff like that. So we want to see them play well with others and see how well they share and how many, how they project their ideas, how they listen, how they compromise. And then we did that for a long time. And then I thought about it and I thought about those students standing on the side of the stream out in the woods with everybody looking at them and said, that's not really playing well with others. That's you're in front. You're the leader right now. And, and there's no escaping the fact that everybody's looking at you. This is not a time to, to delegate authority or to look for consensus. People need you to do a thing and they need you to do it fairly quickly. So how are we going to look at that? And so this is where I went back to my very ever so brief time in the military. And really the only thing I was good at in the military was, was solving silly initiative problems with getting a log over a, a river and climbing a fence with a, a wheel to select people for the military. So we do a bit of that, mm-hmm. um, a very gentle bit of that. There's no shouting. Mm-hmm. Um, there's, no, there's no meanness to it. But I want to see people in front of a group work a little bit under pressure and just have a little stress about you need to come up with an answer to this initiative problem in four minutes. So we do things like we have trolleys, you know, the standing on a log with uh, two logs with pieces of rope to move the log, many people on one log. That was a terrible description of trolleys, but hopefully we can solve that in editing. Yeah, yeah. We're going to do a lot in editing this yeah, time. Uh, that will be where the American accent kicks in and <laughs> someone is just randomly explaining trolleys. Randomly explaining trolleys. Uh, and and uh, minefield and things like that with blindfolded, talking people through a minefield. So I just I just want to see people do a little bit under pressure, just have a sense of of seeing if they can say something. I don't yeah. care if it's right or wrong, but just come up with a with some answer because I think that's important. Another another Christmas book for you. Mm-hmm. Are you ready? Yeah. A uh, recent book, Look again, looking at how mission-critical teams, f- firefighters, in this case in Britain, make decisions and how their teams run. 
a really interesting book called The Heat of the Moment and written by Sabrina Cohen Hatton, who is a, a woman who works in the fire fighting the fire brigade, as it's called over there, got herself a PhD while being a parent, while having a full-time job, lived on the streets for a while as a kid. A remarkable story, just a remarkable story. But her research into how fire chiefs manage the people and the situation is really interesting. Um, a, a great book with a mixture of her personal story and her research, both of which I think are really, really fascinating. Um, so that's a good read, the heat of the moment. Uh, but sort of looking at how do people do these and can they make, can they come up with a decision? Can they stay calm when all about them are losing their heads? Thank you for those uh, Christmas reads. I will check them, especially the heat of the moment that, you know, that definitely piques my interest. So mm-hmm. I'll add that to my list of books that hopefully I do actually read. I, I have a terrible habit of getting books and my wife knows this and then not reading them all the way. And then she was like, are you, have you finished that one? I finished yeah. it to the degree I want to finish. <laughs> yes, right. I'm, I'm <laughs> but, the same way. I'll get really very close to the end and then, yeah. and then start something else because it's made me think about another thing and I'm off yeah. in a new direction. I wonder so, if you experienced this. I experienced this. I don't, once I, when I'm reading a book, I don't like actually ending the book. I don't like ending it because there's some mm-hmm. sort of weird finality to it. I don't, mm-hmm. it's a weird piece. Like I'll slow I down. You don't want it to end. Yes. I'll slow it down and skip yeah. a day because I, I normally read before I go to bed and I might like, well, I don't need to read it tonight because I know I'm going to finish it tonight. <laughs> there was a part two. You'd go right yeah. through part one yeah. and you only slow down at the end of part two. Yeah. It's, a, um, it's madness. I'm exactly the same, Phil. And yeah. it's, I think it's it's probably a good sign that you you're invested and you don't want to leave. Yeah. Well, once again, uh, I think you're copying me. So, I, you know, I think that there's there's deep emulation you have for me, and I and it's mm-hmm. and it's it's a little worrisome. So, I'll, emulation I'll be, and admiration, Phil. Yes. I'm really impressed. Uh, I'm impressed at how good you are at a podcast. So, thank you for yeah, thank you. for being a great host. I'm really impressed at your bravery on on creating this podcast it's a good thing mm-hmm. and i think in terms of what we were talking about earlier about showing the world who we are mm-hmm. uh, more people need to listen more people from more fields need to listen to podcasts like this one to really understand that there's more to us than just mm-hmm. swinging on a rope with a cowboy hat as important as that is well you're certainly doing your share phil yeah so thank you for thank you for your work on behalf of the rest of us well, I have appreciated it and I thank you. And I realize there's one other connection. Once again, Phil Stalkerish, but your daughter's called Hadley. My my daughter is called Ella. Her middle name is Hadley. So I That's weird, man. I know. I just don't I, it makes me it gives me the heebie jeebs sometimes when I think about how connected that, that we are. Is, but um that is. I will my leave mom it to that. Did not like my daughter being called Hadley really? because it's a boy's name. Mm. In her mind, it was a boy's name. Mm-hmm. Not to mention, it's also a village not far from where we both grew up. Yes, um, uh, but it was very confusing for her as to why I called my daughter Hadley. Uh, an activity I really enjoy doing with groups is story of your name. If you have not heard of it, you essentially have to tell people the reason you're called the name you have. If you know the origin, the etymology, or you have a nickname, you just share the origin. And the rationale for me that I really like about it is you could know someone for decades and actually never really have disclosed this information. It's normally very unique. It's very rare to go up to someone and say, hi, my name is Phil. Do you want to know why? Were you you christened a Phil or Philip? I am a Philip. But okay. it, uh, that sort of died out pretty early on, and I've, yeah. I've only ever gone by Phil. But the interesting in, in thing, Britain, yeah. you, you typically 
your name gets shortened whether you like it or not. That's, in, that, in that's true. I was Andy, Andy. In, yep. growing up, and I hate it. Yep. One of the things I like about the US is generally when you tell someone your name, that's what they'll call you. Yeah. But I, the reason I was saying this is I don't know if you looked up Hadley, but Hadley is owner of the the Meadow. Yeah, I think it's like owner of the meadow or something mm. like that. And it, what I thought was fascinating is I didn't know these going into it, what Ella or Hadley what meant. I found out that Ella means little fairy and Hadley is owner of the meadow. So she's little fairy of the meadow. Meadow. That's could not have, well. Could not have made that better. You couldn't have done better. Could really. not have done better. Really. That's ideal. So there you go. Hadley is, I think, uh, owner of the meadow. I was going to be Percy. You were going to be Percy? I was going to be Percy, but my parents wow. didn't like it. And on the way to the church to be baptized, yep. they said, we're not, we can't have that, but we have to, we got to have something. So I'm named after the church. The church in my village is St. Andrew's church. Oh. And they just picked the name of the church on the two minute walk to church. A lot of Andrews in my year. Yeah. It was, it was a big name. Yeah. Lots of fills in I, I'm, I'm all right with it. Yeah. I yeah. think Andrew's good. Did you, did your parents, oh, they didn't. So they didn't have a, a, a girl's name for you. I had a, I had a name picked out if I was going to be, because they yeah, didn't find a, out the same. That's another question that I ask people yep. as well. I was going to be Hannah. I was going um, to be Victoria. Oh, that's nice. Yeah, or a Vicky. I think I Can could I have called you Victoria. Well, yeah. please. I it's I own. Yeah, yeah. It does yeah. actually. I think yeah. of the name Vicky. I could pull off a Vicky or a Victoria. All right. Yeah. And well, sorry. What that's was yours going to be? Hannah. Hannah. It was my grandmother's, my mother's mother's name. Okay. Um, so I could have been Hannah. Um, again, I quite like Hannah. Yeah, I think you suit a Hannah. That's a, it's, yeah. yeah. Oh, there we go. Okay, so what a perfect way to wrap up. Um, so it has <laughs> been a pleasure uh, talking to you, Hannah. I look forward to the next time we get to do so. Thank you, Victoria. It's been a privilege on this end. And uh, good luck with the editing. It should get a, a solid three minutes out of this. Easy. There'll be It'll yeah. be a real strong three minutes as well. With, with, with about 50% American... Yeah, and then and then the then forty nine percent me. <laughs> <laughs> All right, thanks, Cheers, mate. See ya. Bye. Thanks very much. Bye bye. Thanks for listening to Vertical Podcast. And then what about thanks for listening to High Fives Podcast? Can you do it? Okay, try. Thanks for getting us to go faster, guys! <laughs>